0: Two, one. 7 Things You Don't Really Need to Know But Probably Should I'm Kira Revan and this, this is the Sunday 7 In today's episode we're growing food on the moon, tackling ageing with gut bacteria and there's some bad climate news from the UN But first it was on this day in 1962 a 12 year old boy had his arm reattached in the world's first successful replantation of a human limb
1: That's one small step for man, one giant leap
0: for mankind. In 1969, Neil Armstrong took his first steps on the moon, planting his flag on the lunar surface. In 2022, researchers at the University of Florida planted a seed. Ever since man first stepped on the moon, we have fantasized about life beyond our spinning blue planet. So
1: it turns out we never, ever asked the question that if we're going to go to the moon and live there, Can we grow plants in lunar soil? Just was never thought about.
0: That was Dr. Rob Farrell, a professor of horticultural sciences at the University of Florida. This research comes as the Artemis program plans to return humans to the moon. In order to realistically achieve an off-planet future, we would need to grow food in order to sustain ourselves. Now, for the first time ever, scientists have grown plants in lunar soil. Last year, University of Florida researchers planted crest seeds in soil that had been returned from Armstrong's Apollo 11 mission.
1: For their first week or so of life, there was really no difference between the controls and the lunar plants. So there wasn't something inherently toxic to the plants in lunar regolith that would prevent plants from growing. So everything else, everything else downstream is how can we mitigate any negative responses? But at the outset, everybody grew.
0: That was Annalisa Paul, biologist and geneticist at the University of Florida. She and Rob have been on a long journey to get to this point. They endured a series of rejections and setbacks before finally getting NASA to loan them samples of the Moon's surface.
1: So receiving the package was really pretty cool and amazing. I mean, you can imagine opening up a package and holding in your hands the Moon. They saw that what we had proposed for four grams would be more richly informed if they gave us some other samples to go with it. So not only to say, do plants grow in lunar soil, but do they grow in soils from various lunar missions, which came from different parts of the moon.
0: All the seeds sprouted, but the plants ended up stunted. The scientists plan to plant more crests before moving on to other vegetation. If we want to explore
1: another planetary surface, we're going to have to grow plants to sustain us. It's a real honor to feel like we are part of the lunar legacy and got to play a small role in in what will take humans off planet. Six.
0: After a number of cases first appeared in the south of England, experts are urging people not to panic over a handful of suspected cases of monkeypox.
1: Monkeypox is a viral infection and the reservoir is in small mammals, usually rodents, in West African and Central African forest. And so people get infected if they come into contact in some way with those animals.
0: This is Jimmy Whiteworth, a professor of international public health.
1: It's not very efficient at transmitting. And so what we normally see is maybe one or two people get infected from that case and then it dies out.
0: At the time of recording, there were nine confirmed cases in the UK, but it looks like the virus is spreading. Spain, Portugal, Canada and the US have also confirmed cases. It
1: usually starts with fever and headache. People feel pretty miserable and tired. They can get swollen glands. And then this typical rash develops, which is sort of pustular in form. And that's usually what's infectious. And this is infectious until the the scamps actually fall off.
0: It's normally spread by close contact of the skin, but also shared bed sheets, tools and utensils. Without our very recent experience of a pandemic, this might sound a little worrying, but experts are approaching the topic cautiously. Dr. Maria van Kerkover is a WHO's technical
2: lead for COVID-19 and she weighed in on what we know so far. What we really need to understand is the basic epidemiology of monkeypox. This once again highlights um, the threat of viruses like this. This is an orthopox virus. This is one that is on our radar. Uh, of course, but we really need to better understand the extent of monkeypox in endemic countries like in DRC and in Nigeria, Central African Republic and others um, to really understand uh, how much is circulating and the risk that it poses for people who are living there as well as the risk of exportation.
0: Monkeypox is rarely seen outside of Africa and until this year there have been very few cases reported around the world, but Jimmy says there's no need to panic.
1: This is not going to spread and get into the general population and cause an epidemic like coronavirus has. But even so, this is a, a pretty large cluster over what appears to be quite a large area.
0: As for how long it's spreading?
1: This is an unusual outbreak in that it's occurring in men who have sex with men it's not been reported to be a sexually transmitted infection before but clearly we need to investigate that further to see if it can spread in that room but just through close direct contact we do know that it can spread
0: monkey boxes closely related to smallpox a virus that was eradicated several decades ago with widespread vaccination programs
1: And one of the reasons that we think that there has been this increase in cases of monkeypox in Africa is that routine smallpox vaccination was stopped once the disease was eradicated. Giving uh, smallpox vaccination to people who... Uh, A high risk of being exposed to monkeypox or indeed shortly after they've got it will prevent them from getting the infection. So that is one of the interventions that will be uh, offered to contacts of, of people who uh, have had monkeypox.
0: Still to come on the Sunday 7, the Mars Rover's next big mission and how gut bacteria can help turn back the clock. If you cast your mind back to February last year, you may remember the excitement when NASA successfully landed its Perseverance rover on Mars. It's been busy roving on the Red Planet for the last 15 months and now it's ready for the most important part of the mission, searching for signs of life the parachute has deployed and we are seeing significant deceleration Its mission began with a jaw-dropping descent as it was lowered onto the Martian surface Over the last year, it's revealed images of the planet as never seen before Now its mission is hunting for signs of life and it's reached the perfect spot to find it I
3: have been staring at this delta for years now, (laughs) Uh, mostly in orbiter images, and now we're finally right in front of it, seeing it through the eyes of the rover. That's Dr. Katie Stack
0: Morgan. She's a deputy project scientist for the NASA Mars mission.
2: We
3: know there was once liquid water on the surface of Mars. Uh, We know there are organics on the surface of Mars. And so all signs point to the surface of Mars three and a half to four billion years ago, being a habitable planet.
0: And to find more evidence of the habitable planet, the rover will be exploring an area of Mars called the Jezero Crater. Billions of years ago, it was a huge lake, so it's the ideal place for the rover to explore. The mission scientists hope that the rover's high-tech instruments will find clear signatures of life. The best samples will be left on the Martian surface and collected by a future mission to bring the rocks back to Earth. This is Jennifer Harris-Trosper, a project manager for
3: NASA's Mars mission. Imagine if we found evidence that there was some sort of microscopic life there. That's huge. It's, you know, mind-blowing in a way. And so I think the opportunity to look for that and bring it back to Earth and then see what we see is, uh, is going to rewrite history books regardless of the answer.
0: The red planet is dry and dusty today, but exploring the delta over the next six months will give us a new window into its past. Maybe one day soon it can answer the question of whether life ever existed on Mars. in the search for eternal youth we spend billions on treatments procedures and gizmos to halt the appearance of aging the average Brit spends over £3,000 a year on beauty treatments, and that's just to look younger. What if you could interrupt the ageing process that makes certain diseases and conditions more common with older age? Lately, an unlikely candidate has entered the running in the quest to stay young, faecal transplants.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't sound very appealing. Um, It's essentially the transfer of the gut microbes of one individual to another individual.
0: That's Dr. Amy Parker from the Quadrum Institute, published this week in the journal Microbiome Scientists of the Quadrum Institute and the University of East Anglia show that transplanting faecal microbiota from young mice into old mice can reverse hallmarks of ageing in the gut, eyes and brain. So we're
3: particularly interested in ageing from the angle of it being a dominant risk factor for the development of neurodegenerative diseases. So we know, for example, there are differences in the gut microbes of people with Alzheimer's and Parkinson's compared to healthy controls. But we also know that our gut microbiotic changes as we age. And alongside these microbial changes, we also see the development of something referred to as inflammaging. So this is a state of chronic low-level body-wide inflammation that we see in old age. Um, And this type of inflammation has also been associated with driving some of these common neurodegenerative diseases. So we were interested to know whether the changes in microbes that we see with age um, are driving or whether they're just a consequence or a symptom of the inflammation type changes. So are the microbes causative here or are they just along for the ride?
0: After carrying out fecal transfers between young and old mice, they found that the microbiota from old donors triggered the immune system and inflammation in the brain and eyes of
3: young recipients. But excitingly, if we did the opposite and we did transfer a young donor microbiota into aged mice, we could reduce the activation and number of these cells Down to levels similar to what you see in young mice. So it seems that the gut microbiota can be a really important regulator of inflammation in the brain. But even more excitingly, we found that we could rescue production of a particular protein, which we know is important for normal vision. So this is a protein that you find in photoreceptors in the back of the eye, and it's important for maintaining normal, good vision in later life. So not only do we have a potential role for microbial modulation in maintaining brain health, but also in maintaining good eyesight in later life.
0: So it sounds like the magic youth bill has been hiding in our guts all along. Long.
3: At the moment, what we don't know is how long the beneficial effects that we see last for. Um, and so it would be really interesting to know if, for example, if we start treating in maybe middle age, do we then prevent the onset of some of these things? Or is it more of a case of some kind of inflammation has developed and we can reverse it a bit? So that we don't actually know that yet. And it's a bit too early to say whether we'll see the same results in humans. But what we do know is that in the human gut microbiota, we see these same changes with age as we see in the mouse model. And so there is cause to think that we may be able to have some benefit. We'd obviously need to do some correctly controlled human clinical trials to establish that. I'd just like to really emphasise that we're not looking at increasing longevity here. We're really looking at trying to keep people healthier for longer in old age. This is not about extending lifespan. It's about staying as healthy as possible in later life. To come on the Sunday 7, Google steps up
0: its devices game and there's a damning UN climate report right after this.
1: You're listening to the Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso or even try our island edition. It's in all the usual places.
0: UN has some bad climate news. Four of the key indicators for climate change have broken records once again. A report by the UN's World Meteorological Organization has found that in 2021, sea level rises, ocean temperatures, greenhouse gas emissions, and ocean acidification were all higher than ever before. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres put it plainly:
4: "The global energy system is broken and bringing us ever closer to climate catastrophe. Fossil fuels are a dead end, environmentally and economically." The war in Ukraine and its immediate effects on energy prices is yet another wake-up call. The only sustainable future is a renewable one. We must end fossil fuel pollution and accelerate the renewable energy transition before we incinerate our only home.
0: Speaking in Geneva, the UN chief stressed once again that to keep the 1.5 alive, we need to phase out fossil fuels.
4: Transforming energy systems is low-hanging fruit. Renewable energy technologies such as wind and solar are readily available and in most cases cheaper than coal and other fossil fuels. Over the past decade, the cost of wind energy has declined by more than half. The cost of solar energy and batteries has plummeted 85%. And the investment in renewables creates jobs, three times more jobs than fossil fuels.
0: And we don't have a moment to lose. That's why the UN is now proposing critical actions to jumpstart the renewable energy transition.
4: First, renewable energy technologies such as battery storage must be treated as essential and freely available global public goods. Removing obstacles to knowledge sharing and technological transfer, including intellectual property constraints, is crucial for a rapid and fair renewable energy transition. Storing renewable electricity is often cited as the greatest barrier to the clean energy transition. I'm therefore calling for a global coalition on battery storage to fast-track innovation and deployment.
0: Secondly, the UN wants to secure scale and diversify the materials needed for renewable energy technologies.
4: Today's supply chains for renewable energy technology and raw materials are concentrated in a handful of countries. The renewable age cannot flourish until we bridge this vast chasm. This will take concerted international coordination. Governments must invest in skills training, research and innovation, and incentives to build supply chains.
0: Third Guterres wants governments to help level the playing field.
4: In many countries, these systems still favour deadly fossil fuels. We must prevent bottlenecks where gigawatts of renewable projects are held up by red tape, permits, and grid connections. I call on governments to fast track and streamline approvals of solar and wind projects, modernize grids and set ambitious 1.5 degree aligned renewable energy targets that provide certainty to investors, developers, consumers and producers. Every country, city and citizen, every financial institution, company and civil society organization has a role to play. But most of all, it's time for leaders, public and private alike to stop talking about renewables as a distant project of the future. Because without renewables, there can be no future. As today's report makes clear, it's time to jumpstart the renewable energy transition before it is too late.
0: A decade after the debut of Google Glass, Google has unveiled a new pair of glasses with a built-in computer. At its annual Google Developer Conference, the company showed a video of the glasses prototype displaying captions in English, Mandarin, Spanish and American Sign Language. The unnamed pair of specs were teased alongside other new AI-enabled products as part of the tech giant's plans to bridge the real world and digital universe of search maps and other devices. Maps, for example, will soon launch an immersive view from some big cities that merge street view and aerial images
4: let's go to London and take a look what a beautiful city say you're planning to visit Westminster with your family you can get into this immersive view straight from maps on your phone and you can pan around the sides
0: Diversity and inclusion clearly were front of mind as they unveiled a palette of 10 skin tones they describe as a step forward in making gadgets and apps that better serve people of color. To do this, Google partnered with Harvard University sociologist Ellis Monk, who studies colorism. Monk says he had felt dehumanized by cameras that failed to detect his face and reflect his skin tone.
3: Color biases and colorism are really a global phenomena. The reality is um, life chances, opportunities, all these things were very much tied to your phenotypical makeup. And I developed a 10-point skin tone scale with the goal of making sure that everyone across the skin tone continuum feels represented.
0: Google also teased a tablet to be launched in 2023 and a smartwatch to go on sale in 2022. Google still derives most of its revenue from ads, but with in-demand devices like these, they could matter more for Google over the long run. Jordan is one of the world's most water-scarce nations with as little as 100 cubic metres of water available per person every year. To put this into context, the UN defines water scarcity as anything below 500 cubic metres per person. This is a staggering gap which is only growing wider. Rising temperatures, reduced rainfall and limited vegetation are behind the shortage. A rapidly increasing population is also pushing the nation's available water resources to the limit. Efforts to restore once-fertile land have so far been in vain, but in the country's sun-scorched region of Badia, a group of female environmentalists are pursuing new ways to ward off further damage. Diala Tarana is a founding member of Watershed and Development Initiative, an NGO that focuses on land restoration. They hope planting new vegetation will retain rainwater across the country and create fertile land for agriculture and combating water
2: shortages. Wadi's mission does not only focus on the recharge of underground water, but also the increasing of the green cover to combat uh, desertification. And uh, it also focuses on uh, the totality of the ecosystem. So we're working on the water, we're working on the uh, green cover, and we're working also with the habitats of the creatures, from insects to animals and all uh, living parts of of that ecosystem.
0: Using a series of nurseries spread right across the country, WDI is nurturing the next generation of Jordanian
2: vegetation. The Sabha Reserve, in which we stand right now, has an area of 10,000 acres. It includes four types of native plants. The native plants have been carefully thought of, from the process of seed collecting to the preparation of the medium, to sowing and finally to planting. The success rate of these plants is 85%, which is considered a very high percentage. And they are only they only need to be watered once, which is also uh, reducing the amount of water needed for the uh, irrigation of the green areas this has been
0: the Sunday 7 however you're listening do us a favour and hit the follow button we'll be back tomorrow at 7am with the regular Smart 7 Ireland edition have a great rest of the weekend
1: written, produced and published by Dan Doris
0: Hi this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition just to let you know we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August but you can still get up to speed in just 7 minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition thanks for listening